History Lecture 127, Rabbi Bleiweiss. And we are going to be able to focus now on a few more great uh, leaders from the uh, late 20, early, I mean, getting into the contemporary days, early uh, 20th century. Um, Rav Shlomo Volbi is often referred to by his, uh, one of his great works, the Ali Shore, which is a, now it's a two-part Musr Sefer that was a compilation of many of his shiurim. He had, um, he actually, uh, not far from where we are right now, um, he lived in Givat Shaul, and the, I think the Musr Shtibel was in Givat Shaul. I don't know how recently they moved here. When I say here, um, not far around the corner, if you go out to the main intersection, that away towards Dr. Toast, and you cross Kitty Corner over to the other side of the street on, I remember the address is Holy Yosef 17, because Yosef was 17 when his brothers sold him to Egypt. Um, and, and there's the Giva Shul Yeshiva, and that was his yeshiva, and downstairs was the Musr Shtibel. He had the, he, um, remember the old, the Beit Musar? that uh, was the idea of the Musr movement, that people should go specifically with the idea of, of, of focusing on Musr, on Midos improvement. Um, and I was Zolcha to go on a few occasions and hear him um, in the later years of his life. His dates, he lived a long life, 1914 to 2005. Um, many called him the Gedolador in Musr. Uh, he would have probably winced. Uh, most most Gedolim shy away from these kinds of superlatives, but we like them anyway. The uh, well, what does it even mean? He was a famous person. I mean, he, had, I mean, he was influential and he had a niche in being able to talk about... Well, what's more important, Musa or the other side? It's all good. He was obviously... In order to be a good Baal Musa, you, you certainly had to have a mastery of all the rest as well. It's not a, it's not a comparison. I just... My, my comment was not... I'm not really focusing on that as much as just... Uh, we like these highfalutin kinds of statements. People like... Um, People for themselves in, in the arrogant world that we tend to you know, associate with like titles, like superlatives, like people to say about themselves that they're the only first, bestest, greatest, and so on. But what does it really mean to say he was the most preeminent of the Bali Moser? Nothing. It's a meaningless statement. He was a prominent individual with uh, had, 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 had quite an influence uh, on many, um, myself included. Certainly, I, I am I'm, I'm zolcha to be learning the Ali Shore right now, as we uh, as we discuss this. Call me. I'll have to call back. Yeah. Okay. The uh, he was actually uh, he grew up semi from. Uh, he went to university in Berlin in the early 1930s and was Choser Bechuva, or as he described it, I mean, he was Mischazek. He he became, he became stronger as 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 a religious person. He uh, originally attended the Hildesheimer Seminary. Remember that, which was uh, people considered the founding the founding seminary of the modern Orthodox world, or the, German neo-orthodoxy, uh, that was what there was in Germany. Um, he later learned in Mir. Um, during the war, during the Holocaust, he escaped to Sweden and was very involved in the revival of Torah, of trying to save people and trying to um, uh, revive Torah, especially um, he created a Beis Yaakov. He was very active in the creation of a Beis Yaakov school, so not only would the uh, Jewish girls live, but also be able to live in Torah and, uh, and learn and develop and, and deepen their own Yerushalayim. Uh, after the war, he was able to come to Palestine in 1946, and he began teaching here. And eventually, he began to give Musr Shmuzes um, and set up the Musr Shtiblach that I mentioned before. 
he wrote a number of different works. He's known for deep philosophical and psychological insights. Um, he, among, among uh, several ideas that has, has, has carried um, a lot of impact in the world, not everybody agrees with this, it's Machlokas in the postgame, but he, for example, is of the view in terms of um, parenting that um, in our generation, corporal punishment does not work and therefore is usher. That's his view. Even though clearly in Chazal they talk about, people often uh, confuse this term, corporal punishment is not, please, not to be confused with capital punishment. I'm sorry, child, I've said that before, right? I'm sorry, child, you've, uh, you ate an extra cookie. Uh, will, which will it be? Srefa, Sila, Harry, or Henek? The corporal punishment. She did, she did hurt the child. He said today, a combination of factors, not the least of which is we're a very weak, soft, delicate generation and um, kids can't take it and they often even though even with the best of intentions people um, mean to try to show limit their limitations and there's a red line and if you do this you'll be you'll be hit but the child often interprets it as uh, complete rejection and doesn't they forget often what the source of the punishment was they just remember the punishment and getting really angry at mom and dad or whoever the, whoever punished them um, he said it's almost impossible the the the, the, the Parent or the teacher can only administer the the blows if they're if they're 100% confident that there's no anger mixed in with it. There's no personal, um, you know, somehow vengeance there. And Rav will be asked, who in our days can can reasonably be sure that when they hit the kid, that there's not a not not a little bit of their own personal uh, emotion involved in that. That's basically what want to hit a kid. Really there really is, and I mean people get into it sometimes. It's getting out their aggressions, they're frustrated, whatever else. He said, uh, now, now it just doesn't, it, it, it often backfires. Um, he, has, uh, he has a safer, it was um, translated by Rabbi uh, Kellerman uh, on parenting, Binyin Stira. He writes um, there, he, he talks about the two modes, sometimes seemingly contradictory of how to educate children, but he said they just need to be used in sync with one another. Sometimes you need this, sometimes you need that. Um, Binyan, uh, Binyan, you need to sometimes build the child by proactively helping develop them. But sometimes you can't be proactive with children. You have to provide the right context, the right environment to enable the child to naturally bloom on their own. That second area is much more subtle and difficult, requires a certain amount of um, intelligence and uh, distance for, for a parent to know when to hold back. Uh, and and, and um, some parents, with the best of intentions, can damage their children, damage their children by being overly, uh, what do they call it now, the helicopter parents, overly micromanaging. That's not good. On the other side, if you're too uh, hands off, then that's also a mode of liberal parenting today. You know, when parents have the child call them by their first name, that also usually doesn't bode well. Something, something. It's not necessarily a balance as much as knowing which approach is called for in which circumstances. Uh, he had an interesting point, speaking of psychology, um, he writes, and this is, this is some of the stuff came out after he died, he wrote very, very um, strong words against the field of therapy. Um, he described, and I think in a nutshell, his, perp his point was much of psychotherapy was developed by a few individuals Freud, Jung, and Melanie Klein, and others, and um, most of these individuals were unscrupulous, were Rishayim, Al-Bihalacha. 
he, he asserts that anything that comes from uh, Rishayim at core is corrupt and can't be reliable. So he had scathing things to say about the general field of modern mental health. On the other hand, I can personally attest to this, um, when I was running my organization for kids off the derech, and, um, and uh, we had to go to him with individual cases and shilas, on more than one occasion, he said, when we told him about a particular dynamic with the, with the child, he said, the, the child needs therapy. And you think, well, that's a contradiction. I don't think it was a contradiction. On the one hand, what he's saying is the field is a field, and, and it is a hashkafically loaded field, needs to be looked at with great scrutiny. And a lot of the time, their ideas contradict the Torah ideas. Their hashkafas are not coming from the Torah. On the other hand, sometimes on an individual case-by-case basis, you need to rely on these on, on, on professionals who have specific tools to approach uh, certain issues, and maybe uh, not all, that, that, that we don't always have. I, 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 it's, it's a subtle distinction, but I think one that can be made uh, carefully. The, um, in the Ali Shore, he provides step-by-step step instructions, uh, plus organized exercises for all kinds of Midos improvements. Um, he describes uh, one of the ways to deepen, deepen one's Muna is to, I, I felt, I felt uh, this very relevant for this class, is to personally walk through with as many details as you could possibly uh, fill in all the steps of history. Um, he doesn't say history, but all of, like when you picture Itzias Mitzrayim and Kriyas Yamsuf, these great pivotal moments in history, they shouldn't be these abstract, vague notions. They should, you should actually picture yourself with, like we do on Leila Seder, with all the um, vivid Nisimni flowers transpiring, taking place right all around you. He said, when it's real, your emuna will become will be activated. You will be you'll internalize it. You'll identify with it. You've heard me talk about this when we talk by the the, the insight that we always talk about with the, by the gravesite of a, of a tzaddik. You have more you, because you're there. But what is it after all? It's the gravesite of a tzaddik. But because you have something concrete to picture, you have something somehow an um, an attachment to the tzaddik. The similar thing when I try to convey when we guide near Israel and you go to the place where the thing happened you have a greater, it resonates more with you. So uh, that, that's something that he develops. Um, the, uh, he, based on a, a different idea that he bases, uh, the Rambam in his parish Mishnayos has an insight. He says the word chaver, he describes his meaning having two meanings, one of course being a close friend, another one being a Tamil chacham. So Revolbi, based on that Rambam, um, points out that Tamil chachamim, indeed are the only ones who understand true friendship. And they're the only ones who genuinely enjoy, enjoy close friendship um, since their bond is based on the essence of giving. And when you're Tommy Chacham, you understand the major precepts of Torah, you understand what giving really is, and that's the prerequisite for any um, genuine, deep friendship. It's like with, with, with David and Yonasan. Like David and Yonasan, and, and many other examples. You need to have a certain level of um, Torah sophistication to know how to be a proper friend. The Mishnah says, Kneilachafavir in Perkiavos, you have to acquire yourself a friend. It's not a passive relationship, it's one that needs to be nurtured. And the only way you really nurture it properly is with the tools provided by Torah. Uh, he said, Yeshiva students, I must have quoted this another time in the year, very famous bit. Yeshiva students, he felt, should not leave Yeshiva 
except for learning the basic, you remember this, yeah. Except for the basic core curriculum uh, that everybody learned, the Gemara curriculum, he says there are, there are four areas that a student must master before leaving yeshiva. So take notes uh, as we go. Daniel, you're getting this down? Are you winning at least? Okay. Um, so he says, do you remember what they are? Go ahead. It's, it's Rebbeinu Yonas on Abus. Very good. Rebbeinu Yonas. Abus with the Perush of Rebbeinu Yonas. Uh, so first, he says Ramban, the Chumash. The Chumash with the Perush of Rashi and Ramban. Rashi and Ramban. Yeah. And then you have Masel Isharim. Which he calls, do you remember his nickname for the Masel Isharim? Mm-hmm. Guide the, uh, the, the, the Path of the Righteous. He calls it a dictionary for good Midos. That's where you, if you want your dictionary for good Midos, you learn the Masel Isharim. And number four, and number four is uh, is the beginning of the Shukhanah, but no, no. Oh yes, 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 yeah. the Mishnah The Mishnah which is of course yes, you're right. The beginning of the Shukhanah, the Orachim. The six the six volumes in the Mishnah cover the one volume, the first quarter of the Shulchan Um He points out that the greater the person is, the more organized you'll see his life is. The person who has to act together. Uh, that reflects greatness. He's, he, and then he spells out what you need to go to do uh, in order to make sure that all of your affairs, uh, from, from, from sublime to the most mundane, are somehow arranged carefully, carefully, and, and that's what the Torah encourages. Um, approximately the, the same time, uh, time span, uh, Rav Yitzchak Kaduri passed away in 2006. Um, Rav Kaduri was a Kabbalist who lived, some say, until he was 110 years old, so maybe that he actually lived much longer. It's not clear when he was born. Uh, he was born in Baghdad. He learned by the Ben Chai, so clearly he, learned a, he lived a long life. He learned by the Kafachaim, who we met here briefly, one of the Poskei Ador. Uh, he moved there to Israel in 1923. Uh, he learned by the great Sephardi Yeshiva in the old city, the Porat Yosef Yeshiva, where so many other uh, Sephardi luminaries learned. Um, <coughs> among his, what he was distinguished for probably more than anything else was as a Kabbalist. Uh, he wrote works on Kabbalah, not for the masses. He wrote them, he designated them for just an inner circle of students who are on a high level themselves that could understand them. He was somebody who did not write books so that he could sell. Um, and indeed, he never published his books. He also was known for writing Kameos, Kamea, is what we call an amulet, maybe. There's no good translation. Uh, special combinations of letters that... that well, if uh, it's controversial when the wrong person's writing them. Rav Kaduri was, 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 was highly esteemed, though. Uh, many stories abound. Um, maybe we met the, the Baba Sali, who has a similar kind of um, niche in Klai Yisrael. There are many great stories about Rav Kaduri's um, abilities to perform miracles. Uh, politicians came to him, he advised, he advised them in, 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 in all kinds of uh, areas of warfare and statecraft. Um, I quote this before, he said that the Mashiach was alive and he'd met him uh, and would emerge. Rav Kaduri said the Mashiach was alive, he'd met him and would emerge hmm, after the death of Ariel Sharon. That's okay. That's still, I guess, I mean, I guess that leaves it open-ended. It didn't say if it was going to be a thousand years after the death or two years after the death, uh, which we find I ourselves right now. Alive. I know. Yeah, yeah, still within the ballpark. No, you just died. Rav Kaduri died in 2006. Ariel Sharon died in 2013. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, Rav Yosef Shalom Eliyashiv was younger, slightly, slightly, although he also enjoyed Arichus Yamim, 102 years, from 1910 to 2012. Uh, he was one of the leading poskiador for over half of his lifetime, and at the end, with the uh, passing of Rav Shaf in 2001, uh, Rav Eliyashiv became the Gadol Hador. Um, Sephardi world saw they had different Gadoli, but there was a lot of interplay. When they say the Gadol Hador, uh, a lot of Sephardi went to Rav Eliyashiv as well. Um, he was widely regarded. He, um, he had a different, cut a different niche. He was where we, Rav Shach, we correctly understand, was politically active. Shlomo Zaman Orbach had that very um, personal, open and uh, touch. Rev Eliyashev, um, my image, and, and he's the Gadol who I guess uh, during my lifetime I feel I've had more access to. I was open to go in and ask Shailas. Um, we davened with him. I brought my boys, my twins, when they, uh, they started uh, laying tefillin the month before their bar mitzvah. So we, I, I, we, we davened Nates in Rev Eliyashev's minion and he gave them a bracha very briefly. If you sneezed, you missed it. Uh, that was, but he was all business, no nonsense, sat and learned tired. Okay, no, no shtick, as you'll get in some of the stories I'm going to tell right now. Um, Rav Cook made his shidduch, actually, interesting. Uh, everybody was integrated, everybody was involved with one another. Um, and his wife was the daughter of Arya Levine. So these are all figures that we've met before. Um, which Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook made his shidduch with, with the daughter of Rav Arya Levine, the tzaddik. Um, I think I just told this story. Uh, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but it's so good, it's worth, worth mentioning again. Um, yeah, it came up about um, naming, yeah, naming people. Uh, in, in, yes, it came up here too, naming people. So it was Rav Eliyashev who named his third daughter, Sarah Rochel, after a childless widow who was still alive in his neighborhood. And it, people asked him, how could you do this? Our minag is not to uh, do, we don't name after living people. We name after, we name in honor of, of people who've passed on. Rebel Elshiv said, that's nice. When you're posting a door, you know you can take all these factors in and decide what's a higher priority. He said the chesed of raising a widow's spirits um, was more important, overrode the minhag uh, to name children, to not name children uh, after the living. Uh, you remember that he left public office in 1972 following the, the, the Langer-Mamzer debacle uh, and never returned. Um, and indeed, he held no position. He spent most of his time sitting, learning, answering Shilas. His phone didn't stop reading, ringing. Um, he had, uh, when we were there already, his great-grandchildren were his, who were already like, you know, uh, mature adults were, were managing many of his affairs. Um, when he, by the, uh, years before he passed away, he was sandak at the bris of his, get the math here, great, great, great grandson. Right, so you have to be, uh, that's, some, that's, that's, that's an event that most people are not, zochim are not, don't merit to see the uh, bris of their, great, of their great, great, great grandson. Takes a lot of uh, coordination for that. Um, Rav Steinman, Rav Aaron Leib Steinman Shlita is considered the Gedal Ador. After Rav Eliyashev was asked if anyone today understands Kabbalah, and he paused and said, yes, Rav Eliyashev. Uh, you remember Rav Eliyashev, we met him initially, 
um, for co helping to author the work of his great-grandfather, Leshem, one of the great Kabbalistic works of the 19th century. Rabbi Leshem helped him when he was at Bar Mitzvah Boy in the 1920s, composed this classic work on Kabbalah. Um, he's, here's a person who is entirely Torah. Everything about his life was to the point, and he'd so internalized it when he learned that his daughter, one of his daughters had died, and several children had predeceased him. That happens when you live to be 102. Um, I mean, not always, but it, it happened to him. Um, when he learned about it, his immediate reaction was to close his eyes. He immediately, calmly closed the Talmud that he was learning and reached automatically for the Yerideya to start learning the laws of Avelus. You know you're in Avelus, just like on the Adan Tisha B'Av, we only learn certain sections that are relevant to the Avelus. So Rilashev simply made the emotional and mental transition by putting down one safer and picking up the other. Um, some people would hear this and see, wow, you know, it's almost like a robot. Chas v'sholem, chas v'sholem, terrible reaction to this. What it means is you have somebody on a, on, a, on a level that's higher and different, higher than most of ours, and simply different, such a deeply internalized sense of Torah that he is always striving to do the right thing at every given moment. Um, there was something that came up recently where um, some right-wing, politi politically right-wing uh, rabbis were very vocal in um, promoting the, there's a lot of the about this, this honey, which has three definitions. One of them is you're not allowed to sell or rent property near to Israel to non-Jews. And they decided, for political reasons, to speak about this one a lot. Not that in Svat and elsewhere, uh, the rabbi in Svat, current, current, current rabbi, one of the current famous rabbis in Svat and others, uh, were talking about this, and it got a lot of press. And in the modern PC world, it wasn't positive press. It was understood that Allah is racist and bigoted, and you can't sell to Arabs and so on. And um, these rabbis were didn't back down. No, no, don't sell to Arabs. To halacha and so on. Rabbi Yosef's response when he heard when he uh, to to, the, to these rabbis, he overruled them and he said they should put down their pens. Um, it takes a great person to know when to say something and when to not say something. It's true. It's the halacha doesn't mean that every halacha, especially those that are not uh, easily understood by the secular world, need to be advertised. And he said they should put down their pens. Um, he had some novel positions. He passed widely on. Eretz Yisrael, on the laws of Eretz Yisrael, the agricultural laws, he poskined like others that a lot and other, a, other um, areas of the modern state of Israel that are south of, mostly south of Beersheba, are considered chutzlarts with regards to Yom Tov Sheni and that a person who lives there um, should keep two days of Yom Tov. Um, a few years ago, I use this I use this illustration frequently, a few years ago, it was reported to him by, um, you know, with when the Gadol Paskins, he has certain people that he relies on, and, and Rabbi Frati was among, among his close Talmidim, and several of his students reported back from first-hand evidence um, that the source of the shaitals, of many of the shaitals, if not most of the shaitals in the world, came from India, and when researching their source, the, the woman's hair, the women who donated the hair, uh, did so often in ceremonies associated with idolatry. As such, the hair is forbidden. And when, when all the details came in, Reverend Yashin Paskin, um, that the women had to not just throw away their shaitals, but like with the Bodhisattva, uh, and like Chometz and Pesach, these two most severe of the Torah prohibitions, they actually require complete destruction. So he said the women have to burn their shaitals. I tell the story because it illustrates 
it's something that's hard to fathom in our days. What is a gadol? A gadol is somebody who says something, and the people listen and they do it. That's a rarity, and even in the Orthodox world, tragically today, we often are independent and we don't listen to the people. The Gdolim, Reverend Yashiv was one of these figures that had that stature where he said, burn the shaitals, and the women did, and to appreciate just how remarkable that is, um, you can do a lot to women. You can have them scrub and clean for Pesach, you can have them uh, cover their hair uh, while they're married. You can have them, you know, you, you can tell them a lot. But you get between a woman and her makeup and her way she, the way she presents herself to the world, her shaitel, that most personal of artifacts that a, that a religious woman has, uh, that, that she uses, that she steps outside. Sometimes those shaitels cost in the thousands of dollars. Uh, and when Belashev said to burn them, that's what they did. And uh, yeah, I hear the base model is like $1,000, like the most basic one. Not necessarily. You can find loose, you can find reconstituted, they're, they're cheaper ones, but still. And usually those are the ones that you did not require burning. <laughs> they did not come from India. But okay. Uh, that was that was uh, his psak and that was his, his stature. In contrast, I told you about my Shabbos guest. We had a couple boys over from the Reform Movement. One of whose um, parents are, or, are Reform rabbis. And um, he was the boy was describing how offended he was when somebody... They had an ultra-Orthodox speaker in there come visit their program, and he, and he said, um, the Orthodox speaker said, um, reform rabbis are not rabbis. And of course, this young man took umbrage at that. He said, what, my parents are not rabbis? Uh, I think they wanted to say, is my mother a rabbi? And the ultra-Orthodox man surprised him and said, I don't think your father's a rabbi. Wow. Um, so I tried to put it into perspective. I said, how about if you see it like this? It's simply a different job. What your parents are doing has very little to do with the classic role of Rav. I said, among other things, is the whole notion of Rav as an authority figure. And uh, you know, I told the story of Rabbi Yashuv. I said, you know, this is the authority commands. I said, can you imagine your mother or your father issuing issuing any order, any psakalacha, that they'd have any congregant who would do it? Assuming that the congregant would not want to do it, meaning you know, it's one thing if you tell them in, in a book called the Reform Responsa, they 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 suggest nicely. We think it might be a nice idea for family cohesiveness that you spend Shabbos together. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I'm saying, what if your father were to issue an unpopular idea? Would anybody in the shul listen to him? And he had to. This young man had to, you know, uh, agree. No. No, it's true. They don't really carry authority. I said, you know, and if your father did stuff that was unpopular, you know what would happen? The board of directors would fire him and hire a new model, hire next year's model of rabbi. And, and so it's a different job and a different different concept altogether. And we know Rav Moshe, his solution was simply to call the reform and conservative rabbis rabbi, as opposed to a rav. Different concept. Uh, <coughs> he is a psak um, about women's braces, do they need to remove them before going to a mikveh? Is it considered a chatzitza? You know the issue. A woman, in order to have a kosher tefillah and a mikveh, to be reunited with her husband, has to remove all jewelry. After any, anything that would separate between her body and the water is, is, is potentially a chatzitza. Um, the issue is, is if something that's permanent, maybe it's not a chatzitza, maybe it's not a separation. He was machmir. He said a woman's braces are a chatzitza. Uh, in a mikvah. But What's that? Uh huh. I know. I don't know. I don't know the solution. I think there. Are, I think people rely on other positions. He was machmer. Wait, are you supposed to open your mouth in a mikvah? 
don't know. No, but somehow he felt he, uh, you have to look it up. Whenever you never you hear the bo- a bottom line sock like this, don't don't assume you understand it off the cuff. Uh, I told you this story too. Um, there are different levels of chumras in wearing tzitzit. One of the chumras that makes a lot of sense. You know, when we tie our tzitzit, you've tied your tzitzit before. You made your own tzitzit. Okay, you should. Um, so if you, when you first start tiring, tiring, what are you supposed to do? What do you say? Right, l'shem mitzvah tzitzit. What I'm doing right now, I'm not just tying knots. I'm doing this with the idea of I'm keeping a mitzvah. I'm tying this with the nature of, of the tzitzit. If you don't do that, your, your tzitzit are not tzitzit. It was not done for the mitzvah. So that's what definitely everybody must do in tying the knots of the tzitzit. Um, a chumrah that's brought down is that even early on in the processing of the wool, when you're at the combing stage, the bleaching stage, uh, what's called niputz in Hebrew, that the person already preparing the wool for the strings should also say, l'shem mitzvah tzitzit. That's called niputz lishma. When they're doing niputz, they were doing it l'shem mitzvah tzitzit. And Rebbe Lashem Paskin, um, it's nice to have niputz lishma, but it's a chumrah. It's a stringency. It's not necessary, especially since because it's more labor intensive. Nibutz lishma is more expensive. So you don't have to do it. So, okay, so it's a chumrah. So they said, but Rebbe, so so should we keep this chumrah? Should they not keep it? He said, well, no, only if you're rich. Well, Rebbe, what's rich? And his example of what would be considered rich, if you would go out for a piece of pizza, then you can certainly then you can certainly afford nibutz lishma tzitzit. Rabbi probably never ate pizza himself. That would be a, a decadence, a luxury item. Um, but um, that's that's niputz lishma is what he suggested. Uh, one of the gedolim of the um, of, of the Sephardi world, but yeah, Sephardi world, Ashkenazi world, a lot of interplay between them. Rabbenzion Abishau um, once came to Rabbi Yosef with a shail of his own, and Rabbi Yosef was nonplussed. He he, he said, "Why are you asking me a shaila? You're a barhachi. You should you should." answer the question. I'm nobody. Gedolim rarely see themselves as Gedolim, per se. Anybody else here? This was us. This is our... Um, Rabbi Yosef was born in 1920, passed away uh, last year. Two years ago, almost two years ago. It was last year, right, okay. Um, He was considered the the Sephardi Posekador by many, uh, not by everybody, not by all Sephardi. He was the leader of the political party, Shas. Um, He was such a central figure that um, today, part of the crisis in the Sephardi world is finding somebody who has the same stature to walk in his shoes, that's not quite possible, but to, to come afterwards and to, to be the same uh, galvanizing kind of a figure. Um, Ravavadji was born in Baghdad, so uh, similar to the, he was much younger than Rav Kaduri. Um, his family made Aliyah in 1924 when he was a boy. He also learned by, in, 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 the, in, the, in Porat Yosef Yeshiva, uh, he also learned under Rav Pesach Frank, one of the great Ashkenazi post as we say, a big interplay between Ashkenazi and Sephardi, even though you know, there are distinctions made, but uh, a lot of overlap. Um, Ravavadja, I mean, it has immense impact on Kuala Yisrael. I'm only singling out a few points, so if I only isolate a few things, I think one critical piece to understand was 
the perception that the Sephardi world was denigrated, was not revered, not respected by others, by Ashkenazim, and even in the eyes of Sephardi themselves, they often felt second, second tier, inferior. And Avadya felt that was incorrect, that they, the Sephardi world was going on a, a long-standing Messiah. I asserted that in the days of the Rishonim, there's probably a longer list of Sephardi Rishonim who are Gedolim than of Ashkenazim. Not that it's a competition, but just to state, just to state it as it was, there was more of a Torah center in Spain. Um, when we talk about Sephardi today, we've also said that it's terribly misleading because not every Sephardi is, uh, has connections with Spain. Um, I'm further researching, I'm, I'm deepening my research on the city of Tzfas. And in the great period that we talk about, the 16th, 16th uh, century, uh, when the many luminaries, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Ariza, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, Rabbi Chaim Vital, were there, um, in the very beginning, they described the three different shuls from three different communities in Tzfas. They were Sephardi, um, there's another term called, um, I'm going to misquote it, it was a different term, but it referred to those Jews who'd lived in Eretz Israel for unknown generations, who are also today considered Sephardi, but they were distinct than the, the, the recent um, Spanish exiles. And then the third category were um, Jews from the Mugrab, Mugrabi of North Africa, who we also generally call Sephardi. They're all Sephardi, they all get lumped together. In any case, um, all these different diverse groups are often denigrated in the world as we have it today, and Ravadia felt that that was wrong and an injustice, and um, certainly they suffered great discrimination at the hands of the secular Ashkenazi world. You remember we described the 1950s, the, uh, the blackmail that the secular gave, that you can, you can send your kids to religious schools, but we're not going to help you financially. And when people didn't have food to put on the table, what were their options? They often send their kids to secular schools because they felt they had no choice. So Ravadi is part of the revolution of Sephardi pride, uh, as he put it, to return the crown of glory to its old proper stature, to improve Sephardi status in the Torah world. His impact was profound and far-reaching. Um, he spoke to a lot of people who felt this, who perceived uh, being victimized, being persecuted, looked down upon, and, um, and, and among other things, he was responsible for bringing many, many Jews who were alienated from religious life back into observance on some level. Uh, so he, he has, he has a, quite an immense uh, impact on the modern, modern situation in, in Klai Yisrael, especially in Eretz Yisrael. Um, he also he furthered this argument. He was of the position, very logical, that we follow, when in doubt, in Minhagim, we follow Minagamakom. There's a local custom. This is something, something that we do. Um, so he said, Eretz Yisrael is an amalgam of lots of different Jews from lots of different communities. But there really is, he asserts, a minagamakom that goes back far longer than any other minagamakom. And he said, that's the Sephardi minagamakom. Ashkenazim, you'll recall, were here intermittently, but not as consistently. Not the Doridoros. You couldn't trace back as much uh, to the, the, the Sephardi populations in Eretz Israel. And therefore, since nowadays you have kibbutz galios, you have an ingathering of exiles, he felt that the dominant minhag should be, in fact, Sephardi. 
He was pleased with the fact that in modern spoken Hebrew, um, in, in, in the secular choice of how to enunciate your words, they chose Havaras Haradit, the enunciation of the, the classic Sephardi enunciation. That's how most modern Hebrew speakers speak. Uh, and he felt that that was, um, that was also uh, divinely inspired, that that, that that should be the case. Um, he felt that the Pesach, although not always following the Maran HaBeit Yosef, Rav Yosef Karo, should generally follow him. He was, as he called him, to use the Gemara expression, the Marid the Asra, the master of the place in Eretz Israel. And he felt that when, when, when everything else being equal, uh, the Beit Yosef's Pesach should be, um, should be the uh, decisive ones. Um, he, he said that no posik should be stringent in a case where the Mechaber was lenient. We have a lenient Akula from the pages of the Shulchan Aruch. He said it doesn't have to go further than that. And you don't have any rights to be more strict. Um, Again, if Ravadia said something, it carried huge sway, um, but you should know, not everybody agreed with him, and not in the Sephardi world either. Um, he had several positions, very well known, some of them controversial. He inclined in general as opposed to being lenient and explained why. It wasn't lenient just for the sake of being lenient. He said in, in our, what he called, free-spirited generation, he felt that um, if you were lenient, people would be able to keep mitzvahs and learn Torah more, more easily and it would attract more people. Um, some of the examples of some famous kulas that he, he allowed, he said um, a person can listen to, not, he's not alone in this, there are other, other views, other people agree with this, that a woman could hear a man's singing voice if he's never seen her in person. Um, he was defined in the Haredi world. Wait, wait, a man can listen to a woman? Or a woman? Yes, a woman, oh, I, I said it the other way around, yeah, excuse yeah, yeah. me. A man, sorry, excuse my, excuse my uh, presentation. The man can hear a kolisha, a woman's voice, as long as the man has not seen her in person. He's, he allowed girls and boys to learn together um, all the way as late as the age of nine years old, which if you see the way the Haredi world, and we're going to be talking very soon about the way that the, the educational system of the Haredi world generally works, that's quite radical and liberal. Usually kids are separated. Um, some people don't have their kids ever interact with the other gender, even from a preschool age. Um, usually preschool, that's okay. Kids don't know the difference. They're mixed. But once they start any formal schooling like kindergarten and onward, the kids are segregated. So to say that the kids can actually be mixed, boys and girls together until nine, was quite radical and not accepted by many. Um, he was lenient, interestingly, He's very famous, very renowned for his opposition to shaitels. He, he, uh, he was vociferous on the subject, vehement on the subject. He, he did, not, did not agree with that. On the other hand, he said that um, exposing a, a stra um, one or two hair strands beneath the head covering, he said that's okay. He, was, he had a leniency there. Um, there's a shayla that came up about uh, non from Cohen, whether they were permitted to duchen, to, to, to bless the Jews, and he allowed it. Um, it's controversial again because who is fit to Duchen? Somebody who's who's a representative like a Kohen who's a Yerei Shemayim who's keeping the Torah. But here again, Ravadia felt that the um, the imperative of bringing this this Kohen back into the fold outweighed other considerations. Um, he was in terms of learning. He himself must have had photographic memory. He was a master of vast amounts, volumes and volumes, uh, and could cite at a drop of a drop of a coin, um, Rishoni Machroni without any difficulty, uh, Ashkenazi Sfardi. Um, in general, in learning, he advised people. He favored Bikius instead of Biyun. 
that means something to you? And he thought people should have a mastery of everything before they launched and went deep, um, which was not always what's done, certainly not in the modern yeshiva system. Um, as I said, he generally goes with the Mechaber. Occasionally, he'll pass like the Arizal if it doesn't conflict with the Mechaber. Um, he has an inclination against the dominance of Kabbalah in, in, in many areas of Halacha. Um, this is yet another area that set him aside, and um, it was against many earlier Sephardi poskim like the Chidah and the Ben Ishchai, uh, and even some contemporary poskim like Rav Mordechai Eliyahu and many other Sephardim who um, have a strong favor, they, they tend to favor uh, Kabbalah greatly. Um, he had a tendency to minimize the importance of Minhagim, and you have to realize how heavy these words are. Here you're talking about lots of sub-communities, uh, sub the North African Sephardi communities, which are not to be confused with the Syrian or the Iraqi Jewish communities or the Persian Jewish communities or, or the Turkish Jewish community, um, and yet they're all lumped together, and Rav Avadji's tendency was, to, was to indeed to group everybody together and to say, I know you have your minhagim and you have yours, and these aren't so important, and many people were um, encouraged by that and were drawn to it, but um, others were outraged and felt that they were, their, their minhagim were, were, were minimized. And um, we'll talk about other groups. There are the, the, the different, the, the breakdown of the Sephardi world, but um, there were the people who were, you know, within Ravavadi's camp and those more decidedly not. Um, he also, in terms of politics, generally was more integrated with the state. Uh, Shas, for example, joined forces with both left-wing and right-wing governments, um, which was not the this, this, the what, what the Ashkenazi uh, political party did. He um, used to be very lenient about matters involving um, land and the state. Um, he felt once upon a time that um, the um, he felt once upon a time that if land could be traded for peace legitimately, that it was worth it. Later in his life, he seemed to retract that, mostly because he didn't believe, he thought it was, that the Arabs as they were uh, in, the, in the present state were not reliable, and you could, they could take the land, but you, you couldn't believe their promises of peace. Um, but in general, he was known for being a little bit more, ha having, having more left-wing opinions in, in, in political matters. Um, this reads now with some irony. In the last year, uh, they released a video of Ravavadia who um, was very critical and, and, and strong, used strong words against somebody who had been his protege, his disciple, Rav Aryeh who presently leads Shas. You follow Israeli politics? Does mean anything to you? Do you know what I'm talking about? This is very well known in Israeli circles. And he indicates there, this terribly upsetting um, concept, that he was misinformed and he felt that Ari deliberately didn't keep him in the in the know. The reason why that's a big deal, the implications are, you know, Argidolim have the last word on any topic. And it's not necessarily, and I mentioned this just now by Rebel Yashiv, it's not necessarily that they have first-hand knowledge, but that they rely on their the people around them to give them the proper information. Rebel Yashiv didn't personally go to India, but he had good, reliable sources that, to, that, that informed of what was going on in India to, to even the Pesach. So here, Ravavadya was posting various life and death kinds of issues that had far-reaching ramifications for the country to a large degree based on the advice, the, the, the advice of Aryeh Dairy, and later in his life he felt that Dairy betrayed him. 
I can't speak to the details, I don't know, uh, maybe they doctored the video, but there was, um, the, 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 it's relevant to discuss, uh, I would like for you to leave this class um, not naive and knowledgeable about the world to understand um, what we inherit, what we have now in the, in the world as a Tashin I and A is a messy world and uh, helpful to understand the various nuances. Um, <clears throat> he was uh, other famous piece halacha. He allowed marrying a Karite. Remember we talked about Suffolk Mamzer and that old issue that's consistent with the with with Sephardim Doridoros, Back to the Radbaz. He opposed the pilgrimage to Uman that the Breslaver Hasidim and many others take every year. He said better to be an Eretz Yisrael. Um, <clears throat> and um, I know there was a story I told this. Um, Shortly before his, his patira, a couple of years ago, before he passed away, um, he davened in uh, on, uh, his address, Seven Hakablan Street. I remember his address in Harnof, the top of Harnof, and it was um, obviously a very uh, a place that many, many people went to get brachos, to ask shilas. He, his minion, you could attend. It was crowded. You could attend it. And in one episode that happened a few months before he passed away, he's still well, I think. In the, in the last part of his life. He had, he had some illness, but he was functioning and, and coherent. Um, there was a man who came in, and it was the very beginning of Shacharis, and there was, a, like in any Guttel's house, that, like we learned from the Ali Shore, everything has to be done with order, and there's a protocol, and they daven, and then afterwards there's a, set, there's a pecking order, who gets in to see the Rebbe, who gets in to see the Rav, and a man came in at the very beginning of Shacharis and said, I must see the Rav right now. And the handlers, the people standing on the outside, of course, said, I, you know, the Rebbe Step would be happy to see you, but there's a line, and it's after Shachris, and you have to, there's a system here, you can't just go in. You can't just go in, a, you know, a, your own. He said, and the man would not hear of it, and then became violent, and started throwing chairs and stenders, and they couldn't restrain him, and it was shocking, and a major tumult. And through the entire event, people were there, eyewitnesses were there to testify to this. Um, the people were trying to keep him away and protect Rabbi Vajia. Rabbi were trying to was trying to get past his hand and he says, well, why don't you just bring him to me and let me give him a blessing. I want a blessing. Where's the man? I want a blessing. Meaning, you know, you can understand the protectiveness of the people around Rabbi Vajia, the, sometimes the, uh, the not always so sane people in the world, but as far as the guttle was concerned, he just wanted to uh, give blessings out. Um, Rav Aaron Leib Steinman. Um, it's not clear exactly when he was born. I couldn't find a reliable source on this, either 2012, 2014. Um, I think the consensus is more like the former, so he's about 100, 203 years old. Nine, 19, 12. Did I, I, I misspoke again? It's been a full day. I've been speaking all day. So 1912, 1914. And today it's 2004, 2015. So he's had Baruch Hashem, uh, he's been Galador since the death of Rabbi Yosef a few years ago. He had studied with the Imre Moshe and the Brisker Rabbi Bris. The Imre Moshe, I told you the story, was the one whose book, who had the sole copy of the Imre Moshe, was the Stiplegon who saved the book and gave the Imre Moshe legacy. Well, I guess there's also legacy because Rabbi Steinman is still Gadol and, and, and carries on his, his, his Rebbe's teachings. He also learned by the Brisker Rav in Brisk. He learned by Rav Aaron Cutler in Kletsk, even before Rav Aaron Cutler moved to Lakewood. Uh, he also studied in, in, in uh, the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. He was Rosh Hashiv in Panovich, um, travels and traveled and occasionally does travel around the world as well. Um, he actually recently went on a, on a, on a 
chizik tour with the current Gera Rebbe to strengthen Torah around the world and uh, inspired many in, 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 in unlikely places. Um, he has, in his writings, he has a parish on Shas called Ayelis Shachar. Uh, let's say, as a public figure, one of his, um, one of his well, better known, more controversial um, acts was to endorse, in 1999, 16 years ago, um, he endorsed a new movement called the Nachal Haredi. Nachal Haredi was the first time that the Haredi world had an organized division in the secular, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the secular Israeli state's army, in, in Saham. Uh, it's called different things today. They go into different names. It's still there's still an organization called Nachal Haredi. Uh, I know one of the men who's instrumental in organizing it, um, and Rav Steinman allowed it, and was perceived as um, do it being too conciliatory. There were those who had the gumption to put him in cherem for doing so. It takes, and it was not anybody significant, so uh, the cherem was not meaningful. But um, people were outraged and felt that he had betrayed the way of Rav Shach and some of the earlier Gedolim by being so lenient. Um, I think Rav Steinman's perspective was there, is, uh, there are undeniably Haredi boys who are not making in the system who actually might be, might be able to retain their frumkite if they, they're gonna, they may be serving the army anyway, if you can create a separate division, what is Nachal Haredi? They're, they're distinct because A, the boys are together, there is a Torah component, davening is, 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 is built into the day, the kashrus is of the level, of the, of the badats level that a Haredi, uh, a boy from a Haredi family would, would have been used to, and significantly, there's no interaction with women, which is a major feat, a major accomplishment in an army that's otherwise totally integrated. They bend over backwards so that the boys will not in any way have to come into contact with women. Um, and um, listen, it's mixed. In the, in, in the big scheme of things, like any such things, you're talking about a bunch of boys to begin with, we're not starting out strong religiously. So when people describe, we have a student, uh, an alum of Dara, who's now in the Nafa Haredi, not exactly the prototype, but he's there and he describes, let's say, on his base, he described that on, on, a, on a Shabbos where maybe there's 100, 110 boys from the Nafa Haredi, they barely get a minion in the morning, which gives you a sense of what's going on religiously. But is that the fault of the Nafa Haredi or is that the luck of the draw? Is that the boys who are likely to go there are the ones who, anyway, they may have some religious identification, but they're hardly the ones who get up very easily for Shabbos. Not that anybody here would know what that is like, but there are, you can imagine, there are people in the world who don't get up for Shabbos, shockingly, yes. What? But he, he, no would, he was also, he's also an uh, uh, advocate of the Gimmer Party at the United Torah. He is the posik of of what's called the United Torah, the Yahaduta Torah, today for sure, for sure. He uh, that that cert certainly is his niche. But you know, when he initially advocated the Nachal Haredi, it was quite radical. Um, and um, <clears throat> the I'm going to mention this now. It's going to come out in the course of our discussion. I said that the Sephardi world is split. The Ashkenazi world today is somewhat split, not terribly. Um, in the last elections, maybe they lost a, a, a maybe a seat was lost because people didn't vote from the other group. But uh, they got six seats instead of seven seats in the latest round of the Knesset. Um, 
the split you can see is somewhat ideologically reflective of an ideological split, like I mentioned before, of those who felt that they were holding up Rav Shach's view, the old view of no compromise, give them an inch, they'll take a, they'll take a quarter, and, um, and, and, and being very strong in defending the, the Torah world and having nothing to do with the state insofar as you have the ability. Um, to say that Rav Steinman represents the other more moderate view really doesn't give you an accurate picture because Rav Steinman is every bit as stark and uncompromising in his Torah uh, perspective uh, as, as, as ever. Rav Steinman's view is everybody's passionate. His view is described, uh, people, people use it, they, they quote a pasuk in Mishlei, um, the pasuk says in Mishlei, with strategy you have to make for yourself a war, which means you have to pick your struggles. And if you're going to make a fight about everything, you're going to ultimately undermine the greater struggle. And so Rav Steinman is simply more careful, more clever in the way he chooses which battles to, uh, to fight. Um, I have to also say that part of the conflict gets messy and ugly and has an unmistakable political edge to it. Do you know what's going on in Panovich today? Are you familiar with Panovich's split today? At least some of it seems to have, best I can ascertain, something to do with an argument over who gets that valuable piece of real estate. Meaning it certainly, and, and the, those people who are struggling L'shem Shemaim over an idea in Torah, which, how should we go about representing the Haredi interest in the Torah, I believe that there are those who are definitely L'shem Shemaim. I also believe that there are those who want that land and want that yeshiva building. Um, and, and, and there are different views there, and it's not a Kiddush Hashem what's going on. It's manifested, there are different um, newspapers now. The newspaper of the more radical hardline breakaway group is called Hapelis. The group is sometimes referred to as um, Eights. It's familiar to you all? You know about this? Eights. Um, they they're endorsed by Rav Shmuel Orbach, uh, the son of Rav Shlo one of the sons of Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach. Um, and those are the two views. Uh, that was really brief. I got through that. That's an awkward bit to have to do. And I, I, I as with consistent with everything else that we're trying to do here, I, I don't try not to hold back. I want you to get. I want you to be savvy and knowledgeable. Um, I don't want to be apologetic either. But you know, you should know that this is this is a reality. And Bezras said, it seems like, seems like I don't know if we're rounding the corner exactly with it, but it seems that there's increasing consolidation behind. Um, the normative mainstream of Steiner, of Chaim Kanievsky group, that the Hapelis Eights seems to be increasingly fringe. That's that's my perception. Maybe I'm wrong. Rev, um, Lazarus, our Rosh Hashiva Shlita, can tell you quite a lot more about this if it's of interest. We generally don't talk about it because it's so nuanced and so fine-tuned, and it, it ultimately it's so such a chil Hashem to emphasize how many arguments exist between Torah Jews that if people aren't asking, better not to bring it up. But since we talk about everything, so we talk about everything here. Uh, many say the, at the core of the Machlokas, it's Eluv, Elu Dibre, Elukim Chaim. They're really arguing L'Shem Shemaim. Um, you know, the last elections, they resolved differences just a few days before. And, find, and, and probably that's why they got seven seats. This time around, the AIDS party advocated boycotting. I think that even there, I know of people who, uh, um, let's say, ideologically identify with AIDS. But when they went into the vote, and many of them went into the voting booth, and they put in a blank note in the envelope, which means that they protest. 
And I know at least of one person, and I bet a bunch of people were like this, that when it came down to the wire, versus putting the, the note in for the Degala party, for the Degala Torah party, the Yad the Torah party, versus putting a blank note, many of them did the former. Because by being in the government, you could help Torah Jews. Pragmatic approach. Rav Chaim Kanievsky was born in 1928, is the youngest of the c- current Gedolim. Uh, who didn't meet him? You all met him last week or the week before? You weren't there? Oh, what a shame. You didn't meet him, but you saw him. You dived in his minion. That counts. That counts. Um, when he was 16, he had completed Shas four times. You did that too, no? That's, that's how. He just did. You remember that his father was the Stiplagon. Um, his uncle was the Chazonish. The Chazonish had no children. Stipler had one son, Rav Chaim, and two, and two daughters. Um, his wife was the daughter of Rav Eliashev. And he had really good yichas, too. The, uh, <coughs> when he went on his shidduch date with, with uh, Rebetzin Batsheva, who would turn out to be his wife, um, he was pure Torah and didn't have any social experience on any level. So the stipler Gaon needed to advise his son, what do you do on a shidduch date? So he said, you know, when you're talking to the young woman, you have to ask her personal questions. Explain that to his son. So um, Chaim went on his date and he came back and um, his father said, so what did you discuss? Did you, what were the personal questions you asked her? He said, well, I asked her which Masechta her father was learning. That was the personal question of Chaim asked. Um, that was another one. He um, went, when, when I think she came after the engagement was said, she came. Uh, all this, by the way, you read this wonderful book that we have on the shelves, the other Rebetzin Kanievsky, who just passed away uh, four years ago. Uh, read her biography. She was, uh, you'll hear a little bit from me now, but that's a wonderful book that I, uh, I don't always go through the biographies. I don't know if they're all... Uh, equally well done, but this one is. Um, oh, I was, so I was going to say, but I, I don't remember exactly the details, but he went to uh, meet her at the train station and got completely wrapped up in his learning and came back alone. Like, he just didn't pick her up. Like, it's not, it, it just, it, that's his life is tired. His world is tired. He just it didn't make it on time. I don't know exactly what it is. You'll find the details in the story. Uh, he is known for writing many, many sfarim on what some people might call obscure topics. His purpose is to show that everything in Torah is important. And um, things that have less significance now, well, Mashiach is going to come and we're going to need to know everything. So he has, um, one of his sfarim is called Karne Chagavim, the horns of um, grasshoppers. I mean, he writes about everything. Uh, and um, in writing one of this, this particular book, Rav Chaim was stumped. He wasn't sure whether the gra- there, there are certain kinds of grasshoppers, there's a tradition that they're kosher. He wasn't sure about a certain simon that was, that was on the grasshopper, and he didn't have any way of ascertaining it. He looked up all the Rishonim and Achronim on the subject, and suddenly, as he was stumped, and just sitting there staring in his, into his Gemara, a grasshopper jumped onto the Gemara. And he stared at the grasshopper, he found the simon, and he wrote it into the book. When you're of Chaim, we talk about Mormon miracles. Such things uh, happen to our, our, our contemporary poskim. Um, later, he had a suffix on, on, on a similar issue, 
And again, um, the grasshopper came back, and he saw the grasshopper, and he resolved his question, and he was able to write it again. Uh, he says, true story. No reason that he would make such a thing up. Um, the Stipler Gaon uh, rarely celebrated his son's books, uh, but when, the, um, when, when this book came out, he had made a kiddish to publicize the story. People should know that they're Nisim. His approach to writing books comes from the Sefer Hasidim. You remember one of the great Balitosfos? We've talked about him a lot. The Sefer Hasidim says that um, if you write books in Torah about topics that others have avoided, he, he equates it with a mace mitzvah. It's like burying a dead body that nobody else is dealing with. It's taking care of something that nobody, everybody else has given up on, and you, you need to be the one to do it. And indeed, Rav Chaim's books listen to some of the topics he's written about. He has Hilchos Egla Arufa. We just learned this in the Gemara recently, right? The, the, the breaking in the net of the, of the cow when there's a murder. We don't know where the murder comes from. Um, he has a, a book called Derech Hamuna on, on, on Seder Zroim, on the first order of the Mishnah. Many, again, many of the agricultural laws are covered in, this, are in these tractates. His book on Sefer Shekel Akodish, on the, on the, on the Machsis of Shekel. Um, he has a sefer called Curious Melech, which gives sort. Listen to this: sources for the Rambam's Piske Halacha, the ones that nobody else could identify. So Rav Chaim wrote a book identifying. Remember, one of the big problems with the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah is that he didn't give sources. So his son Rav Avram and many, many ever since then have been giving sources, but many have been stumped over the generations. So Rav Chaim has a safer, identifying many of the sources. I don't know, I guess so. Uh, it's such an uncanny work. Listen to I mean, I'm not one to judge it, but his father did. The Stiplagone said it was so uncanny, he said the only way my son could have produced such a great work was with pure siyata deshmaya. Hashem himself helped him write this book. Um, have you seen the safer? I haven't. And it wouldn't mean much to me anyway. It would be something that you'd have to appreciate it. You'd have to be a gun on the door, I think. Uh, somebody of immense learning and the mastery of all of Rambam and everybody who comments on the Rambam to, 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 to appreciate it properly. Um, you can, in the, in the biography of Rebbe Kanyatsky, you learn a lot about the Rebbe, the Rav as well. Um, one of the features that we see in his, he has a very organized life, like the Ali Shor would appreciate, um, every minute accounted for, and many of the minutes, many of his hours, are, he spends hours responding to letters still till today personally. You sent him a Shaila, he often will handwrite, if it reads writing to get to appreciate the response, he'll handwrite very small writing, right? He'll handwrite the response um, before, as before he gets, he's so orderly, before he um, responds to the letters, he first sorts them, he looks at the last names, and he, he picks out all of the Kohanim first, then the Levim and the Israelim. Remember, the Torah teaches that you have to, the Kohen gets first dibs. So he, write, he responds, he estimates by the last name. He's, you know, you, you, can, you can ascertain he doesn't have to be perfect, but he, he, he tries to the best of his ability. Um, and again, the mitzvah is Vikidashta, he wants to be fulfilling this, this mitzvah. Um, generally speaking, like the Stipulga almost like this, Rav Chaim stays out of the public eye, it's not his style of leadership. He prefers to, uh, he never held a rabbinic position. His leading is by, is by example. Um, and by learning, he only once served in the Sadi Kedushin, uh, leading a wedding. Um, but he does, and increasingly now, as he's needed more, um, he does make political decisions when asked. 
Uh, he does this, explains because the, his uncle, the Chazunish, held, um, you have to do everything you can if you're in a position to, to strengthen the influence of Torah. So when he feels he can do so, he, he does. Um, I told you this story recently, but it's worth repeating. Um, at the, um, after the, uh, during the Shiva for the Rebetzin, she died in, in Sukkot, um, he was visited by a wealthy in, uh, philanthropist from America. And the philanthropist said, I'm, I told you all this story? Was it here? Or was it in Gemara class? Gemara class. So I said, I'm prepared to, he said, I'm prepared to make a substantial contribution to any of your or the Rebetzin's favorite tzedakahs, whatever, whatever, oh, it was two weeks after her passing, Whatever, um, whatever you choose. Rav Chaim said, I'd like you to learn Mishnayos Zroim a half hour every day. And the uh, Gvir, the donor said, I'm sorry, Rebbe, I don't think, maybe you didn't hear me. I offered to give a lot of money, you know. And, and Rav Chaim repeated a half hour of uh, Mishnayos Zroim every, every day. Um, Rav Chaim finally said, I heard what you said. If you want to do something special for the Rebetzin's neshama, you'll have to learn and not get off easy by writing a check. Anybody can write a check, Rav Chaim said. Um, tomorrow, we're going to start. Um, we, we have two more units in this class, and then you're going to consider for yourselves. With the Hashem, we'll have a few extra days on our, at, our, at our disposal to be able to, um, to, to learn some other topics, if you're interested. We have a lot that we didn't do this year. Um, so you'll, you'll tell me, you'll give me feedback. I can choose some topics for you too. Um, our next two, I don't know, if we're not going to finish them in a couple days. These are going to take a few more days. Um, but the next, the next two uh, topics are um, talk about Torah today, what the yeshiva world looks like today, particularly in Eretz Yisrael, as Eretz Yisrael reemerges as the center of Torah in the universe. Um, and then we'll talk about the Yemos Mashiach. So that's because Rosh Hashem will pick that up tomorrow.